A bottle of wine is more than just a beverage. It's a time capsule that can take you back to another place and another time. Every bottle has a story to tell. About the person who first decided to plant the vineyard. About the years of pampering the grapes through good times and drought and bitterly cold weather. It's a story of sacrifice, celebration, purple hands, and sometimes purple feet. In that bottle, there's a story about a winemaker who did everything possible to achieve perfection. From the vineyard to the barrel, and at long last, safely secured beneath that cork. Every wine has the ability to speak to you. But to make sure its voice is heard, Grape Encounters Radio is here to help communicate all those endless stories that really deserve to be told. Here's your host, David Wilson. me some ice skin me a peach save the fuzz for my pillow almost anyone in the wine business will tell you it's been one very crazy grape growing year droughts persist in many parts of the world including california which has been dealing with a fourth consecutive year of devastation that has reduced crop yields substantially the story is the same in major wine producing countries all over the world like chile and australia But it's not all bad news. In fact, there's plenty of reason to believe that the 2015 vintage year will yield some truly remarkable wines. That's how many see it, including our first guest, Nick Goldschmidt, whose name is associated with dozens upon dozens of the most respected brands in the world. Nick personally has vineyards all over the world. He not only makes countless wines of the highest caliber, he also is one of the world's leading winemaking consultants. I think you'll understand why very quickly as we dive into a conversation with the legendary Nick Goldschmidt, one of the busiest winemakers on the planet. He's on the line with me now, and Nick, it's been quite a while since we've had you on the show. Welcome to Grape Encounters. Yeah, thanks, David. No, I'm not, I'm not busy. I'm just scheduled. Scheduled <laughs> is my operative word. I think with all of the interests that you have all over the world, you've got to adhere to some kind of crazy schedule. First of all, let's talk about the breadth of your operations. You, of course, have Goldschmidt Vineyards in California. You also have Forefathers, which is a very interesting label. Nick, can you explain the Forefathers concept to us and how it came about? When I was still the chief winemaker at Icon Estates, which was part of Constellation, when I was at Simi Winery, I was the winemaker at Simi for 14 years, we started making Forefathers back in 98, and I was on a plane down to Cloudy Bay going, why am I going to Cloudy Bay to make Cab Chard, Merlot, Savvy, Gris, and everything else? And I thought, well, why not make a wine that was, you know, when you think Sauvignon Blanc, you think Marlborough, McLaren Vale for Shiraz, Uco Valley for Malbec in Argentina, obviously California for Cabernet. Uh, this is before Layer Cape Cupcake and all the other cakes out there. So <laughs> Forefathers is a single vineyard offering of the best vineyards for that varietal in the new world. And then Goldschmidt we started making in 1999. And then more recently, we started making, I have five children, and we started making wines with my daughters. So Chelsea is a Merlot from the Alexander Valley, and we have Catherine Goldschmidt Cabernet, which is a Cabernet from the Alexander Valley, and Hillary, which is a Cabernet from Napa Valley. Now, are the girls actually making the wine? Uh, the older two participate with me fully. The youngest one, unfortunately, we just borrow her name because she's still a little young, although she's getting closer now. She's now in eighth grade, so she's starting to have an opinion. She can make it, but she can't drink it. 
Well, that's true, yeah. <laughs> okay. But maybe that's an advantage. And then um, we make wine out of Argentina called Chakras and a couple of other wines, Estribo and El Chaco. So I've been making wine in Argentina now for almost 20 years. And then in Chile, we have a property down in Chile. We haven't released wines from that property yet. And then obviously we have a little operation in Australia. But I also work in Canada. So I consult in six countries for 25 wineries and have our own operations here based here in California, of course. So I definitely want to talk to you today about the harvest because it's been a very interesting year. But before I do that, I'm curious what your schedule looks like in any given year because you've got to be traveling all the time. Is that right? Well, this year was a little hectic, 2015. I, I traveled probably almost 300 days this year. Oh, my gosh. In the six countries. But remember, you know, when I'm in Chile and Argentina, I'm down there for a month at a time. So I go down there three months a year and then probably a month over in New Zealand, Australia, and then just over a month in Canada and then the rest of the time we spend doing sales around the US, Canada and we just started going export as well. So all pretty exciting. Okay, so let's talk about this year's harvest and, and really this year in general. It started with an early bud break. We have, I think, the earliest harvest on record. Is that correct? Well, I actually, I asked my brethren over at Mum Napa. They used to be part of Allo Demec when I was the chief winemaker of Allo Demec and they've harvested three years in July since Ludovic was the winemaker over there and this was one of those years. So I'd put it in the, you know, obviously it's in one of the earlier vintages, but not necessarily the earliest. Somebody wrote an interesting post on Facebook the other day. They said, if I have to hear any more winemakers sitting around in a cafe arguing about whose berries are smaller, I'm going to get sick. What really did happen with the fruit? And I don't know if you do anything down on the central coast, but I know down on the central coast where I'm at, winemakers are talking about yields that are down as much as 70%. I think the average is probably going to wind up to be 20 25 to 35% perhaps. What's the story in Napa and what's the story in other parts of the world? Well, I think that's a long, complicated question. I don't know if we've got an hour to spend. But firstly, in a drought, we're going to have smaller berries anyway. I make a wine called Forefather's Lone Tree and that's from a dry farmed vineyards. And those berries are always small and so this year was no different. So in a farm that's dry farmed, it doesn't change much. But it depends on the varietal that you're talking about too. I mean, Merlot and Pinot Noir weigh about 1.2 grams per berry, whereas Cabernet weighs 0.95 grams and the dry farmed Cabernet weighs about 0.85 grams. So, you know, the berries get smaller through time, through varietal and, and through aspect. So it's pretty hard just to be generalized and say, oh, you know, my berries are smaller than your berries. It wasn't that so much. It was the number of berries per cluster. So the number of berries per cluster this year was off quite a bit. And the reason that people are saying is because we had bad weather during flowering, you know, which means in April we had a little bit of humidity, we had some wind, and it knocks the flowers off, and so we had less crop. I would also preface that by saying that this is really the fourth year of the drought and buds which are formed one year ahead, believe it or not, were being formed in that drought and so they were less fruitful. And I think we'll have the same thing again next year because being in the drought in 2015 will mean that we'll also suffer a little bit in 2016 as well. No matter how much rain we get. No matter how much rain we get, the bud has already created its crop for next year. We wow. can dissect those buds today and uh, tell you what we're looking at. And then as far as the rest of the world, actually, let's back up on Pinot Noir, where you're talking about Central Coast. Yes, I mean, where I consult with Pinot, instead of picking five tons, we were getting like one and a half, uh, 1.2 tons wow. rather than the five tons. So yeah, Pinot was hit pretty hard. Chardonnay was hit pretty hard too, probably off 15 to 20%. Cabernet off probably in the north coast, Napa, Sonoma, more so in the Alexander Valley than in Napa. Napa came in closer to average for me, but Alexander Valley was a lot lighter, probably 
35% off, which was horrendous. Merlot wasn't off as much, maybe 5 or 10% for Merlot. Really good year for Merlot because no dehydration, so looks really good for Merlot. So let me ask you this, with Pinot down and Merlot looking so good, is this an opportunity for Merlot to recapture some of the ground that it lost to Pinot? I'm <laughs> just asking. I, I, I don't know. We should all drink more Merlot. Absolutely. I mean, Merlot Thank a, you. Merlot is a consumer's friend. I mean, Pinot Noir is expensive. They're often more alcoholic, sometimes a little drier, whereas Merlot can be richer, rounder, longer, and without the green spice character that you get from Cabernet. And, you know, too many Cabernets are made 15, 16 alcohol, and if you remove the spice, which is what makes Cabernet Cabernet, you may as well be drinking Merlot anyway. I think some people regard Merlot as being a sissy wine, and it's anything but that. It's such a beautiful... Why don't you tell the guys at Petrus that? I know. <laughs> well, I didn't say it was wimpy. I think it's a wonderful wine, and I drink a lot of Merlot. And I've been a staunch supporter of Merlot all through the Pinot craze. Because in the end, I think we ended up with a lot better Merlot because the people who knew how to make it kept making it, and everybody else ditched it. And, Ch- and when Chelsea Goldschmidt Merlot in many magazines is always in the top 10 best buys, etc. And we've just seen two more articles come out recently with magazines, and again, Chelsea Merlot featured really heavily in those articles. So yeah, I mean, if you can make a really good Merlot that tastes a little fuller and richer, like Cabernet, but without the green spice, and without the heartbreak of Pinot, and have it fuller and richer, then you're on a winner, and get it under 20 bucks. Tell me the sweet spot for Merlot. At what price do I pay to get an off-the-charts Merlot? Well, for us, I mean, we sell Chelsea at many, uh, a couple of the Safeways around California, and it's normally around about 18 bucks. Wow. 16 to $18. Yeah, it's an extremely good value. How, how much time does that wine spend in the barrel? 18 months. 18 months. Yeah. Okay. We are talking to Nick Goldschmidt. He is the namesake of Goldschmidt Vineyards, Forefathers, Nick Goldschmidt, Boulder Bank, Goldschmidt Daughters. Have I missed anything? No, that's you got, you got most of them. I got most of them, yeah. And, and by the way, before we, we go any further, I'd really love to share with listeners the brands that you've been associated with because it's an amazing laundry list that most people will recognize. Yeah, me too. So, well, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, you will. Can, can you just give um, us a quick thumbnail of your career? Well, at Allied to Mac, I was running Claude Bois, William Hill, Atlas Peak, Gary Farrell, Mum, uh, 15 wineries in Spain, Brancott and Stoneley in New Zealand, lots of wineries around the world. And then with uh, Louis Vuitton, I was looking after um, Franciscan, Estancia, Blackstone, Ravenswood, Cloudy Bay, Cape Mantel, Rafino in Italy, Terrasas in Argentina. And then the brands that I consult for today are uh, Arez Calatera, San Pedro, Terrapacá, Casa Rivas, Mongras, Finger Origin, um, I don't know. Nick, you're making me dizzy. <laughs> Your resume must be 40 pages. All right, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters and Nick Goldschmidt in just a moment. Don't go anyplace. Like any good wine, Grape Encounters is here to make life just a little bit better. And that's a very good reason to stay tuned while we pop another cork and get ready to share something truly special with you. A lot of people ask me why Manzanita Manor's incredible Portuguese dessert wine is called Two Horse. Well, the reason behind the name is as extraordinary as the wine itself. It's because the owner and winemaker at Manzanita Manor Organics actually uses two beautiful horses to pull the plow on her farmland. When you take your very first sip of the Two Horse Vineyard's irresistible dessert wine, you'll immediately experience the winemaker's unparalleled connection to the land. It's what really makes it so good. 
You can purchase this exceptional wine online as well as their purely delicious walnut oil, 100% organic heirloom walnuts, and free trade chocolate-covered walnuts. To learn more about all the Manzanita Manor Organics products, visit mmorganics.com. You can order all their walnut products there and bottles of two horse, of course. Purchase and shipping subject to state and local regulations. Please see mmorganics.com for more information. We're all guilty of sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin wine access system costs a bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works perfectly. The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Inert argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine that you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Simply click the Coravin link at GrapeEncounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. David Wilson is back with more Grape Encounters, and it looks like he's raided the wine cellar for something truly out of this world. Here's David. I'm praying for rain in California So that grapes can grow and they can make more wine we are back with Grape Encounters Radio. So happy to have on the line Nick Goldschmidt of Goldschmidt Vineyards. Nick's got brands from all around the world. Nick, can you kind of give listeners an overview of how the crops are looking in other parts of the world? We've heard a lot about California, but what's going on elsewhere? Well, pretty much the same thing, really. It's been a pretty dry, hard, you know, grape growing season in the New World. New Zealand, which was the big one, primarily in Marlborough where I work, we were off 40%. So there's going to be a real short of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir, and we're already seeing that. We've just started releasing our 2015 Sauvignon Blancs already. And then in Australia, it was the same thing. We've had many years of drought, although we had a bit of a recession on the drought, but now the drought's back again. Chile, a little bit devastating down there. We thought, again, it was going to be the El Nino year, but in fact, we only had two days of rain all winter. So don't wow. count your chickens till we're hatched. When wow. people talk about El Nino, it's not a for sure thing. We think that, well, I think perhaps that LA is going to get pummeled and we'll probably miss out up here and Seattle will get the rest. But in Chile, again, we had a low crop down there, especially on the big varietals like Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet, which are so important. And then in Argentina, it was a more moderate year. We were only off about 5% in Argentina. But overall, 2015 in the new world, you can't go wrong. So if you see a 2015 on the shelf, you're pretty much secure that you're going to have a great vintage. Why are the wines so good when the weather's so bad? What's that small berry thing you were talking about? That's it. (laughs) Yeah. When you have small berries, you have a lot of concentration. But to be honest, starting in 1980, we've had seven bad vintages. And when I say bad vintages, compared to what? Because if you were to line those vintages up in France, you'd probably only have seven great vintages in France. So when someone says like 2011 is a weak vintage, it was not a weak vintage. The only problem with 11 is we didn't have much of it. It was a colder vintage, and so we ended up dropping a lot of crop on the ground to get it ripe. So if someone says 2011 is a weak vintage, I always go, compared to what? This is why we live in California, because we live in the world's most idyllic growing environment for 
growing great wines. And this is coming from a guy from New Zealand. So <laughs> I trust your judgment. First of all, how much of your crops have you got in? Are you completely done now? Actually, believe it or not, today, I'm done. Today was the last day. We're, they're crushing right now at one of the wineries. I hurried back here to take your interview. So we're actually crushing our last load of Cabernet today here. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, normally we finish on November 6th. Wow. So this is a huge difference. Is this fun for you to be yeah, done this early? Beach. I might go sailing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the 2015 is going to be a banner year for wine, and I, I really and truly believe that. 12, 13, 14, 15. I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. How many more banner years can we get? <laughs> it does just keep getting better and better, doesn't it? Well, they're all different. I mean, 12 was a really, in fact, when, when they drop the nuclear bomb and you run to the bunker, you want to take the 2012s because they've got a little bit more acidity. They're going to have better life long term. 2014 was a big crop, and I don't know why it is, but wine writers, powers that be, tend to like big crops for some unknown reason. They get ripe, and they're full, and they're fleshy. Good, nice, easy pHs, you know, so easy to drink, but not wines that stick around for a long time. Great and flashy when they're young, you know, for the first five, ten years, and then after that, they start to fade. So that was 13 and 14, but 15... Not only have we got ripeness in small berries, but we've also got this great natural acidity. Because when you have a smaller berry, you also have a concentration of flavor, sugar, and acidity, and tannin. That's what makes it ideal. So what are the wines to watch for in 2015? What are going to be the standouts? Well, I think Cabernet, this is going to be one of the dynamite years for Cabernet, I'm afraid. And it's going to be a short crops. Of all the varietals, Cabernet was probably my number one. Number two would be Merlot. Merlot vintage just looks incredible. I mean, you, you crush a little bit of Merlot and the stuff's black straight wow. away. Juices are black. I've never seen Merlot like it. Chardonnay was also really good. Good malic acid concentrations. And when you have good malic acid, you get that tightness and leanness. So not only do you get that fleshiness naturally from Chardonnay, but you get a little bit more structure. The weaker wines for me this year were Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc was just too hot when we had to harvest that. And so um, we've lost a lot of varietal character. And then Pinot Noir was so undercropped that the alcohols are just going to be too high. So Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc would be my least preferred. Cab and Merlot would be my way preferred. And then Chardonnay would be close and behind. What do you think that the overall production is going to be compared to the prior year? Are we going to be down 20%, 30%? I'm talking about from California right now. When you talk about California, you're including the Central Coast and Central Valley. Right. We'll only be off in the Central Valley due to vineyards being pulled out. And then in the Central Coast, I think it was a pretty hot, arid year down there as well. So they probably have been subjected to lower crops. So if you look at California, my rough guess would be we're probably off 10% overall. But if you're talking about quality grapes, we're probably talking about 20%. Okay, we just have a minute or so left, but i got to ask you a question. It's, this is totally out of left field, all right? But this issue that keeps rearing its ugly head pertaining to arsenic and wine... Uh Tell us what's really going on there. There are those who are trying to scare the wine consumer, and now we've got a multi-billion dollar lawsuit that's lingering out there. What's your take on this, and how do we get past this? It seems like it's really giving winemakers, or at least some winemakers, a black eye unfairly. Well, I mean, I'm no expert, that's for sure, but I'd also say that it's somebody that's trying to attract attention for themselves. We all know that brown rice has way more arsenic in than wine. And there are many other foods that are the same way. So when somebody says, oh, I'm not going to drink wine because it's got arsenic in, well, there's two schools of thought. Number one, what quality of wine are you drinking? Because unfortunately, the wines that are aged in oak and the wines that, you know, you and I drink have very, very low levels of arsenic. Unfortunately, it's the cheaper wines, the wines that are not aged for very long. They are the ones that have high levels of arsenic. And why is that? 
just through time, again, I'm not an expert about why that is, but it is a scare tactic and I, I think it's totally irrelevant and there are many other things that I could scare you with. You know that the world's most toxic insecticide is organic. Did you know that, for instance? No, what, what so is it? It comes from chrysanthemums. It's a pyrethrin. It okay. kills everything, but it's organic. And just because you buy something that's organic does not mean it's pesticide residue-free. Yeah. When you pick on something like arsenic that's created a storm by a couple of guys that want to get attention to themselves, when in fact there's plenty of other things that are just as dangerous or way worse than a little bit of arsenic, which is naturally occurring in soil anyway. Is there anything that any winemakers are doing to preempt any possible action against them, or is your community just basically saying it's going to go where it's going to go? It's going to go where it's going to go because it's not an issue. We make wines up here in the North Coast. We age these wines for so long that they don't have any of that compound in it anyway. Okay. Very, very low levels, and so that's not an issue. Well, Nick, I do want to mention the fact that you are involved in the grapeseed winemaking project, and we've had a chance to try some of those wines. That's really, really terrific wines. How are you feeling about that project? I think it's a really cool and an interesting project. Our wine's called Elementary, and I like the project because it gives me an opportunity to make something small from a vineyard that would otherwise sort of get blended away, and a vineyard that is worthy, and so this is an amazing opportunity for people that don't know what it is, I'd really encourage them to investigate what Grapeseed is all about and see how you can join up and, and get some of these amazing wines that Grapeseed is offering. And as I said, we're making Alimentary, which are two single vineyard Cabernets from the Alexander Valley, and they're phenomenal. And vineyards I've been working with for more than 15 years. And everything about this project is really first class. The packaging, the whole concept is so novel and amazing. So I'm glad to see that you're involved in that. And if anybody wants more information on Grapeseed, you can go to GrapeEncounters.com and in the search box, just search for grapeseed as one word, and you'll find the complete story that we have done on grapeseed, actually two stories that we've done, and you can check it out there. Nick, I appreciate you being on. Excellent, David. I really appreciate you inviting me. Oh, no, I I love it. It's so great to have somebody like you on who has such a global perspective, and I couldn't love wines more than the wines that I've tried from your various wineries. I really appreciate what you're doing. you can find us on goldschmidtvineyards.com. You can go to the website. We have a little wine club there, and you can also see some of the little magic vineyards that we get to try from all around the world as well. Amazing. Amazing. All right, Nick, I appreciate it. We're going to be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. If you're near a computer or have your smartphone in hand, join our Facebook group page by searching for GrapeEncountersRadio.com. David will return after these enlightening messages. Encounters Radio is always on the lookout for great story ideas, even if they're completely and totally off the wall. So here's the deal. Share your story ideas with me or send a question you'd like to hear answered on the show. If I use your question or suggestion, I'll send you a special gift. I want to know what you want to know. You can contact me on the Grape Encounters Radio group page on Facebook or email david at grapeencountersradio.com. If you've got something for me, I've got something for you. Grape Encounters Radio is based in Atascadero, California for good reason. It's the heart of the Central Coast wine country and the perfect home base for endless adventures. Atascadero is friendly, affordable, and offers unparalleled access to world-class equestrian ranches, bicycle trails, hiking, breathtaking beaches, cutting-edge culinary experiences, and endless wine country adventures. Learn more about Atascadero, the gateway to good times, at visitatascadero.com. We're all guilty of sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. 
The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin wine access system costs a bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works perfectly. The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Inert argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine that you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Simply click the Coravin link at GrapeEncounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. David is back with more Grape Encounters. But during this segment, he'll be doing one of his very favorite things, sipping with Sarah. Sarah Schneider, that is, the esteemed wine editor of one of America's leading lifestyle publications, Sunset Magazine. Here's David and Sarah. There ain't nothing finer than a big bottle of wine. It's the only thing that'll get you through. We are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and it is time again for Sippin' with Sarah. Sarah, have you noticed that I have been attempting to stump you with wine the last few weeks here? Yeah, I'm not sure what all this testing is about. This is the Stump the Wine Editor series. It's kind of fun because I do so much talking all the time that I get to (laughs) sit across the table from you and watch that baffled look on your face. (laughs) Knowing that however baffled you might feel that in the end, you're going to get it right. You're going to get it as right as anybody could possibly get it. Well, I... You never miss, Sarah. You you know, (laughs) one way or the other, you are right in the zone. You know, I just reserve the right to miss. And when I do, it's a spectacular miss. That's never happened. I've been off with you a little bit. I I know when you have, you've stumped me on prices on wine, I have been wildly off. It actually surprises most people, I think, when professional wine tasters, and I suppose that's me, they taste the same wine and they disagree on how good it is, what kind of quality it is. In, In our own Sunset Wine Competition, our panels of three really experienced tasters will often, you know, break out into fights over wine. Oh, you mean like throwing Close. fists? No, no fists, no fists, but okay. words fly. And, you know, it's good that they do because by the end of the conversation, they all usually know something more about that wine. And they're tasting blind like we're doing here. And I think as much as it drives me crazy because I don't have any reference points when I look at this wine and I have no idea where it's from, what grape or grapes are in it. And yet it's the best way to come at a wine and figure out, wow. What is it like? What's its personality? And do I like it or not? I think if you love wine, you should drink as many bottles of wine as possible in the blind. You just should. I agree. Because being able to look at the label in the bottle is such a huge crutch for people. And yeah, you know, if if you know it's a Cabernet, you're going to taste it and go, oh yeah, Cabernet. Immediate expectations. Yeah. As much as like I'm not a Pinot fan, as an example, I would love for you to pour me a Pinot and for me to go, wow, I love I love this wine. This is really delicious. And then you go, oh, this is a Pinot. I wouldn't be and all mad about yourself. that. I'd be happy about yeah. that. I'd be happy to learn that a grape that's not my go-to grape would be one that I really enjoyed. And then I would seek out more of those. It opens your paths up a little bit for adventures, yeah, instead of keeping you to your comfort zone. 
think we all need to get out of our comfort zone a little bit. Yeah. And you got to get over your past prejudices as well, because one of the fun things that I love to do is when somebody comes into our wine shop and they say, I don't like Merlot. I let that kind of blow over. And then, you know, after 15 or 20 minutes that they've been there and we've moved on to much, you know, different subjects, then there's a particularly great Merlot that's made by somebody that, you know, Adam Lazar, right? you know, right. who is a rock star winemaker, he is, yeah. a rock star winemaker. And I take that Merlot and I cover the label with my hand. I pour it into a glass for this Merlot hater and lo and behold, they will taste it and they will go, oh my gosh, I don't know what that is, but that's delicious. That's amazing. It's delicious. And they usually go home with a bottle of that wine in their hand because most people I think are happy to learn that something that they thought they didn't like, they actually like. Yeah. And that's really where we need to take the wine business is to get people to realize it is more important to drink wine that you enjoy than to figure out how to enjoy a wine that doesn't Uh, resonate with you. uh. That's what most people I think find themselves stuck in that conundrum of, wow, everybody says I should like this, but I don't like it. So how do I bring myself to like it? There you get to the crux of it. We're told what's good and what's not good. Yeah. And exactly. Why why do we believe it? Why do you women walk around in these big high heels? (laughs) None of you like it. There you have our behavior as people. But you do it anyway. We go with what we're told is beautiful, is tasteful. It's good to get out of those zones. Okay, here's a zone that I think we can get into that is kind of interesting, okay? And again, this isn't stump the Sarah. Let's call it drink for thought. It does make me feel better that what you're doing to me here, this blind test, you do to a lot of people in your shop. I like that. I do it to everybody and I do it to myself too. Now when somebody comes for me to taste a particular wine, I generally request that they don't show me what the wine is. I don't want to know what it is. Just pour it and let me see if I like it. Interesting. Because in the final analysis, it doesn't matter what I taste in it. All that matters is that I like the taste of it. So I already have my nose in this glass that you poured. Yeah, in. you're you're going to be co- super confident in this one. Go ahead. Well, I'm not. I'm not. You're um, not. It is white. I, <laughs> I I have observed that. Way to go, Sarah. Okay. It's white. From the nose, it has this deeply earthy nose, but that has this almost honey beeswax quality to it. Okay. Whoa. That's not what I was expecting. Didn't expect that, did did you? Did not expect that. And what did you get a big hit of? Okay, I got a big hit of sweetness, for one thing. Yes. It's a a sweet wine. That honey blossom quality does still come through. I see a big butt coming. This one is stumping me. This is truly a stump. Really? The Sarah episode. Okay, hold on. Another sip. Hey, gang, I wasn't trying to stump her, by the way, but you should see her staring at this glass. She's scratching her head now. So first from the nose, I wondered if it might be... White Bordeaux grapes, which would be Semillon and Semillon Blanc. I can see that. But from what you just said, I'm not sure I'm headed down the right direction. That would be correct. Mm, are we in? We're we're in the category of wine that has that that sort of petrol diesel earthiness. You couldn't be more correct. All right. That's amazing because it's a quality in wine that somebody would not naturally say that it's got a petroleum kind of quality because obviously that would be a bad thing. (laughs) But as I recall, when I was 12 years old and mowing the lawn at home, I loved to stick my nose in the gas tank of the lawnmower and just smell the gas because I find the smell of petroleum actually kind of an interesting... (laughs) But don't breathe too much of that. By the way, I'm not encouraging people to sniff gasoline. But And in this wine, that petrol quality comes along with that apple floral. We, We must be in Riesling territory here. 
Yes, we are not just in Riesling territory. <laughs> we are in the great, big, beautiful world of, of Riesling. Okay. Okay. This would be a German Riesling. German Riesling, then. Hmm. That's what I'm going with. Hmm. Okay, I'm handing the bag the over reveal. to you. Go ahead, just go ahead and open it up, Sarah. Dun, da, da, dun, 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 dun. Wow, oh, you looking. really stumped me. Oh. Finger Lakes, New York. I yes. love it. I love it. Yes, 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 yes. Oneida. Oneida. This is a wine actually made by our dear friend of the show, Will O'Lean, who, among <laughs> others, is leading the charge to try to stop this fracked gas from being stored under Seneca Lake, where some of the oh. uh, most wonderful wineries in all of upstate New York exist. I have also brought for you this. A what button. do we have? There, I'm making oh, you political. We are Seneca Lake. Yeah, these are I the just, folks that are trying to stop the storage of this really volatile gas under the lake. I love the cause. I will yeah. wear this. Okay. So what do you think of this? I think it's beautiful. It's yeah, different, It's huh? interesting. I think the petrol quality definitely puts off a lot of people, but I think if you put it into context and you realize that that is the sign of a really authentic Riesling, that you're going to get that petrol quality it is a in marker a good Riesling. For the grape. It, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a characteristic of the grape and in no way negative whatsoever. And this has a lovely balance of acidity to hints of sweetness and, I mean, green apples, stone fruit, blossoms. Nice wine. I just think that we have not been as tuned into Riesling's lately. You know, there was a time, I think, when Riesling had a much larger amount of shelf space than it does today because there's so many other white wines that are competing for that. You have oak Chardonnays, un-oak Chardonnays. You have Sauvignon Blancs from the United States, Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand, any number of Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris. Right. So much of that. So much. Moscatos are taking up a lot of shelf space right now. The white category is really being infiltrated in a big way with a lot of different wines that we're not used to. And good old Riesling, which was the standby for many, many, many years, is kind of taking a back seat, I it think. It has. But you know, it's getting better and better now. And boy, could I have used this bottle last night. I had Thai food last night. I had a salmon and coconut milk and green curry. Would have been gorgeous with this wine. Yes, it would have. And I think it would have neutralized that petroleum quality in the wine because I think food immediately sort of knocks that down a little bit. But I like Rieslings a lot. I just think we don't drink enough of them. I and agree. that's why I wanted to have you taste this today. Oh, that's fun. To remind us that Riesling is right on. <laughs> I like the alliteration. Did you yeah. pour another glass? You did. Wow. It's only I been thought, going on for like 10 minutes. I Sarah. thought you God. weren't watching. No, I wasn't. Okay. So we give this uh, two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Yeah. Yep. You would drink this again. I would drink that. Hey, this wine is Oneda Vineyards. It's O-N-E-H-D-A and made by my dear friend, Will Olean. A lovely wine. And that guy makes a whole bunch of different Rieslings, by the way, as do a lot of the winemakers in the Finger Lakes. And they really have... Have this Riesling thing down, uh -huh. Pat. Mm -hmm. In many ways, I think that they're making Rieslings better than what we're seeing out of Germany in a lot of respects. Uh, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. So I'm sorry, but Blue Nun, I guess you'll have to have the blues <laughs> for a lot longer. That is a German wine, isn't it? Blue Nun? Well, is it Austrian? Could have been out of Austria. I don't know. I, I just Probably know she's, she's been a nun for a very long time. But to her credit, you know, a lot of us came of age drinking Blue Nun. She's responsible for a, a, a lot of us loving wine. So are you telling me that she's caused those wines to become a habit? <laughs> Do you want me to sign off now? Yeah, I think we All right, we we'll be back with there. more Grape Encounters. You don't have to laugh at that one. Not great. <laughs> okay, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. 
Brave Encounters Radio is always on the lookout for great story ideas, even if they're completely and totally off the wall. So here's the deal. Share your story ideas with me or send a question you'd like to hear answered on the show. If I use your question or suggestion, I'll send you a special gift. I want to know what you want to know. You can contact me on the Grape Encounters Radio group page on Facebook or email david at grapeencountersradio.com. If you've got something for me, I've got something for you. Grape Encounters Radio is based in Atascadero, California for good reason. It's the heart of the Central Coast wine country and the perfect home base for endless adventures. Atascadero is friendly, affordable, and offers unparalleled access to world-class equestrian ranches, bicycle trails, hiking, breathtaking beaches, cutting-edge culinary experiences, and endless wine country adventures. Learn more about Atascadero, the gateway to good times, at visitatascadero.com. Living in and broadcasting from one of the world's finest wine regions makes it virtually impossible not to make frequent references to the multitude of amazing things going on here on the central coast of California. Grape Encounters Radio has built one of the world's most unique wine bars so that you can have the opportunity to come to the city of Atascadero and enjoy great wines and equally good conversation with me and other visitors. Best of all, my favorite hotel in the area is literally right across the street the historic Carlton Hotel with accommodations that are both beautiful and affordable. The Carlton Hotel takes you back to a glorious time in California history. And now that the wine industry has ushered in yet another exciting new chapter here on the Central Coast, you can experience the best of then and now. Book your accommodations at the lovingly restored Carlton Hotel in Atascadero. Then, let me help you plan daily excursions that will create a lifetime of unforgettable memories. You'll find a link to the Carlton Hotel at GrapeEncounters.com. Grape Encounters Radio. My guest is Keith Nichols of Nichols Winery in California. Keith is pretty unique in the winemaking world because he won't even release a wine until it's at least 10 years old. That might as well be a lifetime in human years. So Keith, how many times in the past have you gone to wines that have been in the cellar for a long time and discovered wines that did not hold up? Actually, generally what happens is that If you open a bottle of wine and it appears that it's not holding up, if you go and open another bottle of the same wine, then you find that it's okay. So I guess the one downside of aging wines for an extended period of time is now and then you will find a bottle that just hasn't held up for whatever reason. Maybe it was the cork that was in the bottle, but in general. They all are marvelous. Uh, Recently, I've opened some of my 1996 Chardonnays, and my 96 Chardonnay from Tally Vineyards, when I open that bottle, it tastes and smells just like lemon meringue pie. It tastes like lemon meringue pie. Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's weird, too. Well, I guess it is, but, you know, when you think about it, every Uh, wine, when we smell and taste a wine, there's many flavors that we're getting there, and it just 
some come forward at different times in the evolution of wine. I don't think I've ever heard lemon meringue pie in tasting notes before. Well, I guess so. Well, it takes takes a 10 years or more for yeah, wine to, to, to age to, to, to get to, to, to the to, lemon meringue pie flavor. So is it risky business when you're selling wines this old? And as you said, once in a while, you'll have a bottle in the batch that's not holding up as well as others. And, and who knows why that even happens? You know, they're all going down the same bottling line, using the same corks, came out of the same barrel, et cetera. But every once in a while, there's going to be one that's yes. not holding up well. How many times do you get a call or do you get calls from time to time from somebody who's purchased the wines and said, oops, got a bad bottle here, Keith. It's interesting that people that really know wine and they are wine aficionados and they're buying my wine from Nichols Winery, a library wine may be 15 to 20 years old, not 10 years old. So I have this one gentleman in New Jersey who buys my library wines all the time. And he's told me many times, he says, Keith, he says, I understand when I buy cases of wine from you because they're older wines. I know there's going to be one or two bottles that are not going to be right, but I understand that. And he doesn't even expect me to replace it, but I still will do that for him. Whereas someone who doesn't know a lot about wine and they want to try a wine that's been in bottle for 10 or 15 years, those are the people that will call you and want to bottle replaced. And I don't have a problem with that at all. Part of the cost of doing business. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's for the person who's buying the wine as well, is what comes with the reward of being able to buy wines that are that old is that sometimes there's going to be a little spoilage. Yes. You know, the other interesting thing about having wines that are so old, I've got calls from people that had some significant event that happened in, say, 1995 and in 1998. Either they met their girlfriend, now wife, in 1995, 1998, they got married. They're able to call me and say, Keith, do you have any wines from 1995 or 98? I say, of course I do. So they buy a significant amount of that wine. That's a very interesting thought. It's a very good year for them, and they want to be able to sit down and have a nice romantic evening and drink wines from the year they met, the year they got married. It's so fascinating to think about wine as living history and the idea that that wine has seen so many things happen, you know, as time goes on. And I I think you and I talked about this uh, the last time we were together, going back to those Madeiras, you know, many of those wines were made before there was electricity, before there were automobiles, let alone planes. And yet, you know, that wine sat there, beautiful and pristine, and survived generation after generation of family members that served as guardians to that wine. It's an amazing thought when you think about it, and, and amazing to think about what your wines have lived through. You know, yes. to get, to, I mean, 22 years is a long time. It is. Yes, it does seem like a long time. You know, 22, I'd like to be 22 years younger. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, Keith, very nice talking to you today. It's such a fascinating business that you're running. Do you know anybody else that's doing what you're doing? You know, I can't honestly say that I've come across anybody that is intentionally aging wine for that length of time. I mean, certainly there are lots of winemakers that make wines that will hold up and that are, you know, wines that are collectible and and will lay down. But to do it on purpose with all of your wine, that's a very different story. Yeah, I, I don't really know anyone else that's doing it. And fortunately, I don't have any partners, so I don't have to ask anybody or get approval to do that. I just 
there was something I wanted to do. So I did it, and I'm having so much fun getting to experience these wines over 10, 15, 20 years. It's just a joy to experience them as they age. If I went into your cellar and I randomly grabbed a bottle and poured it blind into a glass for you, could you tell me what it was? I could tell you the varietals. If you're asking me if I could tell what year it was, no, probably not. All right. <laughs> I was curious about that. Oh, okay. How well you really know your children. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I have too many children to know them all really, really well. All right. Well, Keith Nichols has been my guest. It's Nichols Winery. You can find them online at NicholsWinery.com. It's N-I-C-H-O-L-S winery.com and you'll ship wine wherever they are, right? Wherever they want it shipped to, I'll ship it, yes. It's a great experience and if you get a chance and you're hearing this, just reach out to Keith and get a bottle and try it. It's going to be something very different than you've ever experienced before, wine that's been sitting this long. The most patient winemaker I think I've ever met in my life. That's you. Yes. Well, thank you. Or actually, these people could bring a group and they could have a library wine tasting ah, for eight or ten people. In the upside-down cellar. In the upside-down wine cellar, yes. And that, they can select the wines. And what you mean by that is the cellar is upstairs, not downstairs. Correct. It's in the rafters. It's a cellar that's upstairs from the downstairs cellar. Yes, and, and in the rafters. And what's very interesting about the upside down cellar is the walls are all cases of wine. Randomly. Randomly, yeah. Placed. Caddy Wampus. A treasure hunt. All righty then. That's a wrap for this edition of Grape Encounters Radio. I think it's time to uncork something really fine. Gee, I wonder where I can get something with a little age on it. We'll talk to you next week. You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. Do, 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 do. Wine.